Today we're going to look at 12 verses of the 10th chapter uh, in a message that I have entitled, Learn the Lesson. And so let's take our hearts to the Lord in prayer. Father God, once again, it's just such an honor to be here. And Lord, I just want to pray that you would bless every dad, every spiritual father, physical father, Lord, those, uh, God, who have taken that uh, responsibility of being the spiritual leaders of their homes. And I pray, God, that today you would just encourage them, pour your spirit out upon them, God. Just resolve that sense of due diligence within them to honor you and to lead their families accordingly and appropriately, Father. Uh, that we would uh, take your yoke upon us and learn of you, Jesus, as you've called us to do. And so, Lord, we just give this time to you. Would you edify this body as you glorify yourself? And we'll give you praise in Jesus' holy name. And everybody say, amen. 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 The best way to learn. uh, You know, some would say the best way to learn is by experience. I would agree. However, does it always have to be your experience that you learn from? Uh, I would say no. Uh, Perhaps you've heard the phrase, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. The idea being that the experience of others in the past should serve to save us some heartache and or, uh, you know, repeating the same mistakes in the present. Well, in our current context, Paul has been establishing the place of liberty, the priority of love, you know, my right to do versus the right thing to do. You know, I may have the right to do something, but that doesn't necessarily make it the right thing to do. Are you following me? And therefore, I am to let love take the priority over my liberty. Why? Well, Paul tells us for the sake of the gospel, that we might learn to be an effective witness and to, to maintain an effective witness. You know, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So even if something isn't sin, but it slows me down, it overshadows my ability to show Jesus clearly, to shine brightly, then why insist on pursuing it or partaking of it anyway? Guys, I'm not saying it's the easy thing to do or even the most pleasurable avenue, but we're to adopt, if you remember right, that we would call it an athletic attitude toward the eternal end goal. And that's the concept that we were considering as our time came to a close last week. You know, an an athlete may want to eat junk food, Uh, may desire to sleep till noon. There's even the right to do so should they so choose. But they learn to say no to the desires, the cravings of their body because there's a greater end goal uh, that they have fixated their sights upon. And Paul's point in bringing that up was this. If they'll do all of that, if they're temperate or disciplined in all things for the sake of a temporary or a temporal reward, well, how much more should we, you and me, be willing to say no to the cravings and desires of our body? Or, you know, that is, how much should we be willing to exercise self-control if it will serve to make us more effective in our witness and gain us a greater reward eternally? We can abuse our freedom such to the extent that our witness, our ability to share Christ with others is rendered virtually non-existent. And then, you know, what happens is that all that I've done in serving the Lord faithfully, serving all these years so sacrificially that Christ might be glorified eternally is essentially lost. And that's what Paul was talking about when he wrote in the last verse of the ninth chapter. If you're there, I draw your attention to it. Verse 27 of chapter 9, he said, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. You see, just because I may be blessed currently 
may be a real blessing to others spiritually. It doesn't mean that my reward cannot be lost ultimately. Are you with me on that? That I can't become, well, our word is, our Bible word for this particular topic is disqualified by insisting on indulgence. You see, if I lose sight of eternity, if I live to soak up all that this world has to offer presently, in truth, it can destroy me spiritually. Just look, Paul will say, at Israel's history, and you'll see how a people you know, uh, can be blessed of God tremendously and yet not experience immunity from disqualification. In chapter 9, we were shown Paul actually used his own life as a good example of rightly handling liberty. Here in chapter 10, we have the bad example in Israel's history. How they were set free from bondage by the power of God, led out of Egypt miraculously, blessed immeasurably, but disqualified tragically from entering the promised land because they refused to walk by faith. They, they wouldn't say no to the cravings of their bodies, that is, that inward lusting of the flesh, you see. And so you're with me. Let's take and turn our attention beginning in chapter 10, the very first verse where Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, moreover? You know, there in verse 1, he says, moreover, brethren. Well, he means that he wants to talk with this more over the topic at hand, right? Which for them, if you remember right, was the liberty to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, versus walking in love toward the weaker or less informed believers among them. Was it okay, you see, for them to eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol? And the answer is yes and no, right? In chapter 8, Paul established the fact that an idol is, you know, it's, it's really, it's nothing. And so it's fine for the Christian who recognizes that to act according to that knowledge in regard to themselves, but not everyone shares that knowledge. And therefore, he says, Liberty is, is, is good, but love is better. It's more important than the knowledge that leads to liberty. Meaning that even though I know that eating meat sacrificed to an idol is all right for me, you know, if it causes my brother to stumble, I just won't do it because it's not the loving thing to do. It's not the considerate thing to do. It's the inconsiderate, self-serving thing to do, Right? And then in chapter 9, Paul gave us the example of why it's important to be willing as a Christian to give up your rights just as he himself gave up his right. You remember to be financially compensated by them. He gave that right up. And at the end of the day, he says, we do what we do in regard to sacrifice and service, again, for the sake of the gospel, out of love for those around us. It's our heart, you recall, to be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. We want to build others up. We want to encourage others, not tear others or bring others down or cause them to fall. We want to be effective in this life that God has called us to live before him in the sight of others. And the point that he's ultimately aiming at is this. Being privileged spiritually, hear me now, does not grant immunity from moral responsibility. Do you understand what I'm saying? Just because God has delivered you doesn't mean that now you can just kind of do whatever you want to do, okay? But it's kind of a, a weird philosophy that many people will kind of nonchalantly ascribe to. 
You know, that because they believe in Jesus, you know, they've been baptized, they take communion, well, now they're in, and so they just kind of do whatever they want. And Paul is going to illustrate how dangerous that mentality can be. He says, don't forget, don't forget that all of our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You see, the Corinthians, you remember, as we recall, they were a group of believers who were just blessed spiritually in what would seem to be an above and beyond measure kind of way. But Paul says, look, I want you to see how blessed Israel was in their exodus from Egypt. Guys, they had it, Paul would say, made in the shade, right? I mean, literally. They literally had it made in the shade. This pillar of cloud that went before them, that hovered over them. It provided shade. It sheltered them. They had a pillar of fire by night that was protecting them. And it was just that constant, ready reminder that God was always with them that his presence and his glory was right there in the midst of them, leading them in the way that they should go. And what a glorious thing, wouldn't you say? And what a wonderful picture. It makes a great illustration of the spirit-led life. Guys, your journey with Jesus isn't to be some burdensome kind of experience in the sense that you're you know, always without a clue, always wondering where to go, always wondering what to do. You remember Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And notice, you will find rest. That's so important. You will find rest for your souls. He didn't say, take my yoke and learn from me and you will find stress for your souls. You know, that's the way a lot of people kind of navigate life. He said, no, you'll find rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's in Ezekiel chapter 44 where you discover that the Lord was informing, instructing the priests that when they were to enter into his gates there at the temple to serve him, whenever they were drawing near to him, and going to minister before him, he says, listen, you're to wear linen, not wool, not anything that would cause them to sweat, okay? And the point was that serving the Lord, ministering to the Lord, it's not about striving. It's not about sweating it out. But ministering to Jesus doesn't wear you out. It's to refresh your soul, you see. Um, so many people sweat over, well, you know, what's the will of God and where should I go and, you know, what should I do? And they're striving and they're struggling. Listen, stay under the headship of Jesus in communion with Jesus. It's not about perspiration. It's about inspiration. Moving in stride, in step with our head. As the cloud was over them, Jesus, our head, right, is over us. The one who's covering us like that cloud, who's going before us, who's leading us in the way that we should go. There's a reason, isn't there, that he said, I am the good shepherd, right, who leads us, who feeds us, who guides and governs and directs and corrects us. He goes before us, you see. But all of Israel enjoyed this spiritual blessing, being led of the Lord, protected by the Lord. Paul says, all passed through the sea, and in coming under the cloud, and through the sea, they were, well, the word is, baptized into Moses. That is, they were identified with Moses. And that's what the ritual of baptism is, right? Right? For you and me, it's, we say it's the 
demonstration or the identification, right, of the inward transformation with G, through Jesus Christ and the work that he's done upon the cross. And we identify with the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus and what he did for us in solving the sin dilemma there upon the cross. And as I say, he is our head. We are his body. He is our leader. He is our savior. He is our deliverer. He is our, well, the Bible says, our all in all. He is our everything. Moses in the Exodus becomes a type, right? We we talk about typology, or he becomes a a picture of Christ. Guys, the people, go back, read the Exodus uh, scenario. The people weren't saved by any work of their own, were they? I mean, uh, it was Moses who was sent to them, wasn't it? It was Moses who fought for them, stood you know, before Pharaoh and, and all of the things, who stood in the gap on, on their behalf, who led them out of bondage. It wasn't their faith uh, through which they crossed the Red Sea. You know, in the book of Hebrews, by faith they crossed through the Red Sea. Well, by whose faith? It wasn't theirs. They were panicking. They were freaking out. They were complaining. Moses, what have you done? The sea's in front of us. The mountain's on this side. The mountain's on this side. The army's behind us. Man, just take us back to Egypt. They, they just wanted to go back. They're like, Moses, you've brought us out to die. Guys, it was Moses who went down to the water. It was Moses who smote the sea with his staff as God commanded. It was Moses who acted in faith on their behalf, who led them across on dry land. And when they got to the other side, they sang, what was it? Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses. They were baptized into, they were identified with Moses. He was their leader, their savior, their deliverer, a foreshadow of what would be ultimately fulfilled, you see, in Christ. Not just for Israel, but for all of mankind who is in bondage. Not to Egypt, but to sin and death. Jesus becomes our Savior, our deliverer, our leader are greater than Moses, whom we identify with in baptism. Are you following me? But Israel was blessed tremendously. Paul says, man, they all ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the food or the drink wasn't physical, okay? It means that it was provided for them supernaturally, that God was doing a work among them. Manna from heaven, the bread from heaven, coming down to save them, to sustain them. Again, a foreshadow of which Christ fulfilled Maybe you recall, you're familiar with your New Testament, you've read the Gospel of Matthew and all, I mean, even as a child, right, you, your, your Sunday school teacher or your children's ministry class, there you were, and you're learning of the story of the feeding of the 5,000, right? And here Jesus is, and he's uh, all the, it's just 5,000 men, not including women and children, right? And there he is, and he's ministering to them all day, and, and it's, they're all getting hungry, but it's time to be sent away, and, and, uh, but Jesus says, you know, there's no place to eat around here, so you know, you, you, know, you give them something to eat. And uh, the disciples kind of look at him, and they're all like, you know, they're, they're doing the math, it's not adding up, they don't have any food, and, uh, and they're like, Lord, I mean, you, what are you, you know, I mean, we found this kid who brought a sack lunch, you know, his mom gave him and all, there's like a couple of fish and a handful of like little barley loaves, and, uh, and Jesus said, make everybody sit down. And he had them all sit down, and he took the bread, and he blessed the bread, and he broke the bread, Right? How many times you realize the blessing oftentimes comes through breaking? Just that's, just maybe that's a word for somebody. But there he is, and uh, he feeds the, the multitude. I'm beginning to digress. I need to get back. He feeds the multitude, and then he sends them. He tells the disciples, he says, I want you to get in a boat, and I want you to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. As for me, I'm going to send the multitudes away. Because he knew, I don't know if this is why, but in my mind, he knew those guys were tapped 
you know, they were a little frazzled. They were a little frustrated. They were getting kind of burned out with all the folks demanding and this and that. And so he, they probably didn't have the tact to send them away in the right way. So he said, once you boys just get in the boat and head on over, I'll send the multitudes away. And so you know the story. that He sends them away. He went up on the mountain to pray. But later that night, he crosses over the sea, right? He walks on the water. You all, you're all familiar. And there he is. And he's going across. And the next morning, all the people, look, they kind of knew what his route and all. And so they saw the disciples going to the other side. They're adding it up. They're making the connection. So they're like, okay, Lord, we'll leave. And they just tootle around the shore to come to the other side. But when they get there, they're, they're, you know, there's the Lord. And uh, they're like, uh, uh, how'd you get here? Right? Because they knew that he had sent them away and the disciples had taken the boat and all that. And, and Jesus, rather than going, well, you know, I just walked across the water. He, he, Jesus has this way of always getting to the heart of the matter. Right? Kind of like when the, and guys, forgive me if we go a little bit, uh, like when the woman of the well, at the woman at the well, you know, you know go get your husband and, uh, uh, you know, and she's like, well, I don't have a husband. And he's like, you know, well, yeah, you, you speak the truth. You've actually, you've had five and the guy you're with now isn't your husband at all. And she's like, oh, I perceive you're a prophet. You know, and she's kind of like trying to change the subject. And he's like, listen. And he just comes right back and he begins to minister to the heart of the matter. Same thing on this, uh, when they, they're all like, well, Lord, how did you uh, get here? He said, look. And he began to minister to the heart of the situation. He said, you're not seeking me because of the signs, meaning, meaning because you think I'm Messiah. I'm fulfilling the prophetic you know, uh, uh, foretellings of Scripture. He says, you're eating me because you ate and your stomachs were filled. But he told them, not to labor for the food which perishes, but for the food, he said, which I will give you, which endures to eternal life. And, you know, they were still kind of had this one-track mind. They were like, well, what sign, wink, wink, uh, will you perform that we might believe you? Our fathers ate manna. Right, they're asking for this kind of this other another bread kind of breaking miracle thing. Well, you know what sign are you going to do this? We can believe you. Our fathers ate manna in the desert. You know the the bread from heaven. You remember what Jesus said? He said, "Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven." Notice, for the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to Him, "Lord, give us this bread always." And Jesus, would, He just He made it clear. He just told him, "I am the bread of life." And he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. You see, not only was bread provided for Israel supernaturally as they alluded to and wanted Jesus to do for them in that day, you see, but Paul says water was as well. They all drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Again, guys, I want you to notice that Paul is, is careful here to point out the fact that it wasn't a physical rock that just rolled along beside them. You know, it's like, you see this boulder, you know, and then so that they could drink every time they got there. You know, he says, he says no. Now, now, they drank from a physical rock. We, we, you know, we see that in Scripture when Moses smote the rock a couple of times. But Paul is saying, look, the, the provision from God for them was spiritual. The point that he's making is that it was the Lord who provided salvation, who saved them, uh, who refreshed them, who gave the water of life to them. What was it that Jesus said in John chapter 7 on that last day, that great day of the feast? He stood and he cried out saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers or torrents or gushes of living water. Guys, what he's saying is that if the waters of the wells of this life aren't doing it for you, come on, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you've drank of the, the waters of 
drug abuse. You've drank from the well of alcoholism or sexual conquest or money or power or platform and influence, all of these things, whatever, whatever the well is that you've tried to drink so deeply from, and you're still thirsting for more. It's not doing it. It's not quenching that, that thirst, not ultimately, not that deep thirst, you see. Jesus says, come to me and drink, and you'll never thirst again. Again, reminiscent of that encounter with that woman at the well in John chapter 4. He said, if you'd known who you were speaking to, because he said, give me a drink, right? And how is it that you, being a Jew, would speak to me, a Samaritan woman, this and that? And he said, hey, listen, if you knew who it was who was speaking to you, you'd have asked me, and I'd have given you living water, and you'd never thirst again. Out of your heart. See, now not only are you content, but you're spilling out. That life of Christ is spilling out unto others. You see that? Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And all these things, you guys, that the Lord had done for the Corinthian Christians, he had done for Israel in the Exodus. Deliverance, bread from heaven, living water, blessing after privilege after blessing. Do you see how, how this is tracking? Now, look at verse 5. He says, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. Guys, this is one of the great understatements of the Bible. Okay, listen. There was some two, I mean, you can do the math, you can add it up for yourself, some two, maybe three million people who were delivered out of Egypt, okay? Now, of those who were uh, 20 years of age and older when they first surveyed the promised land, out of all those millions, how many obtained the reward? Two. <laughs> so it's fair to say that with most of them, God was not well pleased. You would think, here's the point, guys. I mean, if you think it through, you would think that with all the blessings, all the privileges, all the provision, all the protection that Israel came under through the deliverance, that it would invoke such gratitude that they'd have done everything that they could have to be even more pleasing to God. But such was not, listen, and oftentimes is not the case. There they were, right? I mean, you review it, you know, you let the, let the movie of your mind kind of, it's rewinding, and there they are. And they're standing on the edge of the promised land. And they're serving it with excitement and they're anxious about it and they want to know what's happening there in it and all. And so Moses gathers 12, one of each, one man from each tribe, right? And he sends them in to survey the land, to, to check it out. And we'll keep the story sort of short. They, they go, they do, they come back. And man, they're carrying, the, the cluster of grapes is so big, like basketball-sized clusters of grapes. It takes two men to carry it, you know, between them. And man, they're like, man, the land is amazing. One problem. Man, there's giants in there. I mean, as goes the grapes, so go the guys. You know what I'm saying? It's like they're big. Everything in there is just huge. And I mean, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. You know, 10 of them spread in FUD. We call it FUD, right? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You see? They're, they're spreading the FUD. And, 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 and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, they're like, no, 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 no. no. These guys are like, they're our bread. You know, in other words, God will use these men. He will grow us through these, these people, man. I mean, God will do what he said he will do. 
will overcome. But the people, now listen, you know, if you don't, go back, read it, review it, get familiar with it. The people were persuaded to follow the report of the 10 guys, not the two. How many of you realize that the majority isn't always right? Just want to throw that out there. So God said, that's it. This entire generation who refused to trust me and succumb to the fear rather than walk by faith will die in the wilderness and your children, whom you're going, oh, but our kids will be, what will happen to them when we, you see, he says, no, 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 here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna die in the wilderness and your children that you're using as this this, uh, covering for your own fear, they're gonna inherit the land. And what ensued was the longest death march in human history, 40 years. And their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Guys, in the end, not even Moses and Aaron made it in. They were disciplined. They were disqualified. You remember that rock story we talked about? You know, Moses was told to strike the rock and the water would flow and so there he was and they were complaining and he struck the rock and living waters flowed and the thousands upon thousands drank from the waters. They were saved. They were refreshed. You know the story. Fast forward, there they are again on another day and they're complaining and they're griping and they're grumbling. You've brought us out here to die. There's no rock. Moses is exasperated. He's frustrated. He, the Lord says, hey, listen, Moses. Look, here, here's the thing. You need to have patience. You need to understand. You need to be a little more empathetic, a little more sympathetic. Just go out and speak to the rock and, and living waters will flow and the people will be saved. Do you remember what he did? He went out there and he was like, you stinking rebels. Why do we have to? And he got all wham, wham, and he strikes the rock. Now, what happened? Water flowed, didn't it? But God told him to speak to the rock, but he struck the rock, but the water still flowed. You know, let me tell you this too. Just because God is moving, that doesn't mean that God's always approving of what's going on in the person's life who's representing him, okay? He'll always honor his word. He'll always do what he said he will do. But then what happened? God said, Moses, step into my office. And he called Moses in, and, and he says, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, I told you to speak to the rock, right? Yeah. You struck the rock, right? Well, yeah. Well, he says, well, that's it. You did not, you failed to represent my, I wasn't angry with the people. You represented me inaccurately before the people. And here's what's going to happen. You've disqualified yourself from the reward. You're not going to enter the promised land. Why was that such a, like, but God, why? All I did was, I mean, you said speak. I mean, I hit the thing with a stick, but is it really that big of a deal? Yes, it is. Why? Because that rock was Christ. Now, Jesus was smitten once for all mankind. You see that? The first time the rock was smitten that the water might flow. But now that the rock has been smitten, if you want to receive from the waters, the, the living waters that flow from the, the, the wellspring of life, what do you got to do? You just speak to the rock. You say, Lord, and you speak, and you come to him, and you surrender yourself to him, and the water flows. He'll give to you. He said, come to me and drink, and I, I'll give freely. So Moses ruined the type, the picture, see? Jesus isn't, he, smote, he, sm- he was smitten one time. Now we speak to the rock. Anyway, he and Aaron, disqualified, disciplined, all of these blessings didn't ensure the reward. They forfeited it through unbelief and insistence on liberties rather than recognizing their moral responsibility to honor God. Guys, isn't it interesting 
how somehow, you know, and this is just, you think about this. We have come to a place in our culture, I don't know if it's a global uh, epidemic or a spiritual pandemic or if it's just sign of something that's prevalent here, but um, we kind of have brought ourselves to where we allow ourselves to believe and perceive that God is there only to meet our needs, you know, rather than seeing him as the one to whom we surrender to unconditionally. And it's not that, you know, God doesn't want to meet our needs. He is our all in all, right? But somewhere in there, we gotta remember who's God, right? Is he there just for you or are you there surrendered to him? You see. Well, in verse six, we read, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 fell nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer you know the angel of the lord that went through the camp now all these things happened to them actually let's go back i want to stop right here in verse 10 why were these things, actually, look at verse 11. <laughs> All these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That's the second time that he says that. Look at verse 6. Now these things became our examples. Why were these experiences recorded? As examples that we might learn by rather than repeat the problem. Guys, their experiences became or becomes an illustration so that we might make practical application of the need for personal holiness, um, consideration for one another, laying aside liberty and walking in love toward one another, And here's where we kind of begin to see, listen to me, don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, you know, we're under the new covenant, so we don't really need the Old Testament. No, no, listen, a thousand times, no. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the new covenant that God has spoken. Is that what your Bible says? That's not what my Bible says but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Guys, the people began to lust after, to crave meat. God was supplying manna, but they weren't content with that. What's the takeaway? Be careful complaining about your station in life. We need to learn contentment with God's provisions for us, not comparing ourselves amongst ourselves. Listen, now if you can better your station, if an opportunity comes along, great, go for it. But don't get tunnel vision. Don't get in that position where you're just lusting for more. You know, they wanted meat. Remember, this whole discussion began with their desire to eat meat offered to idols. Remember that? So Paul's bringing this illustration about how they wanted that same kind of liberty. Long story short, God gave them what, he, what they wanted. The, he blew, the wind blew off the ocean, you remember, and, and just drove innumerable amounts of quail in, and they were flying low about, well, right in the strike zone. And the Bible talks about them, and they were literally just... Wow, they were just hammering these quail out of the sky as they were flying by. And the Bible says that he who gathered the less got 10 homers. <laughs> Literally, they were batting, they were getting homers, you know? Everybody was hitting a home run. Okay, that one didn't go over as well as I thought it would. But homers really is what it says. And it was a certain quantity. But I thought the play on words would amuse you. I was wrong. Um, <laughs> But uh, be that as it may, they were so lustful in their desire for it that as they started just tearing into it, the Bible says that while the meat was still between their teeth, God struck them with a plague. And they named the cemetery where the people were buried Kibroth Hata'ava, which translated 
Graves of craving. Think about that. Graves of craving. Anything wrong with eating quail? No. But when it becomes an insatiable lust of the flesh that I refuse to place in check, it becomes evil to me. Does that make sense? It rules me. I bow to it. I have to have it. That intense, unbridled craving, or as the Bible calls it, lust. It started by being unsatisfied with how the Lord was providing. And as they were with meat, if I can just bring it right up, some of us may be with money, right? It's just an illustration. Money in and of itself isn't evil. It's, you know, people say, well, money's the root of all evil. No, it's not. It can be a tremendous force for good. But the love of money, that's the key word, the lust for money, that insatiable desire, the insistence of pursuing it at all costs becomes evil. Beware of lust. Always wanting something or someone else. Lust, guys, is like a fire. The more you feed it, the more it demands. Okay? He speaks of idolatry, specifically here in our section. It's in Exodus chapter 32. He's referencing the golden calf incident. You know, the people were, you know, Moses went away and the people were, you know, they were all, hey, man, our pastor's been gone a long time. You know, I mean, what's he doing up on that mountain anyway? I'm not sure that we like the way that he's leading us. You know, I mean, he's not even around for us and all of that. And so they spoke to the assistant pastor. Well, you're here. You're always around. You're available. You know, this kind of thing. You be our leader. You make us, you know, gods to go before us. And so just to, for the sake of time, let's just, I'll just tell you, that's exactly what Aaron did. And he crafted a golden calf. And the people ate and drank. They started partying, having sex with one another. It says they, they ate and drank and rose up to play. It's a euphemism. Essentially, they, it was just a big orgy. They lost sight of the Lord and gave way to placing other passions before Him. Guys, we can't worship God however we feel like it. Okay? The right God must be worshiped in the right way. Well, what's the right way? Well, he, he prescribes it in his word, okay? Listen, you start worshiping what you want, be it Mary or saints or angels or, you know, fill in the, in the blank, uh, in the way you want, in the name of God, you know what that's called? Idolatry. You're worshiping the God of your own. You, you've, you've made a God. You just made it up. He speaks of sexual immorality, which, you know, as we've discovered, was a real problem in Corinth, just like it is with the people of America. And this is a reference, and I'm just giving you these quickly for the sake of time, but it's Numbers chapters 22 through 25. And essentially, a prophet by the name of Balaam shared with the king Balak how to invoke a curse upon the nation of Israel by teaching them to, you know, uh, or introducing them to their gods. He said, listen, what you need to do is send your young women down into their camp because he was afraid as they were encroaching upon his territory and he'd heard the stories. He knew what was happening to everyone that they were encountering and how they were destroying the people and all. And beginning to, you know, be there, there they were. They were getting ready to cross over, and everyone, they were, they were just uh, taking out the enemy. And Balak was like, oh, no. And so he hired Balaam, and Balaam told him, look, well, I, you know, they're, God's for them. I mean, he's going to just do what he said he would do. But here's what you can do. He's a very jealous God. And so send your young women into their camp. Teach them how you worship your gods and through sexual immorality and all. And that's exactly what he did. And uh, they enticed the men of Israel. And again, God sent a plague, wiped out 23,000 in one day, 24,000 in total. He talks about testing Christ. You know, what is that? Seeing how much can I sin and still get away with it. You know, Will God really do anything about it? 
And he mentions the serpents that God sent among the camp to destroy the people because of their complaining. Again, just griping at Moses for bringing them out of Egypt uh, only to die in the wilderness. By the way, you know, at the expense of just uh, repeating myself, God doesn't appreciate our constant complaining. Why? Because it, it takes issue with his sovereignty, his provision for us personally. And so he sent serpents to bite the people and the bites, they, 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 you know, they were uh, uh, venomous and they burned and uh, the people were all dying and so they cried out to Moses to intercede and so Moses interceded and God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fashion a bronze serpent, a serpent made of bronze. Now, metal in, uh, bronze, the bronze metal in Scripture is a metal of judgment. We don't have time to get into all the wild fours and hows and this and that. But just, And he says, I want you to take this serpent, I want you to set it on a pole and set it up in the camp. And it'll be that whoever looks to that serpent, my provision, you see, uh, will be saved. They'll live and not die. You go, well, man, how does that work? Well, I don't know, but I can tell you this. It demand, if you're going to look at that serpent, you've got to believe the word of God, don't you? God said, do this, I'm going to do this. That's called faith. And so God was essentially saying, I have judged your sin. And if you'll believe me for that and look to my provision in regard to that, you'll be saved. Are you following what's happening here? Now fast forward. 1,500, 1,700 years, whatever the case may be. And here's Jesus in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus comes to him and he says, you know, good teacher, we know that you're a man of God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with them. And what did Jesus do? He got right to the point. He didn't let Nicodemus butter him up. He just says, hey, listen, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He knew what Nicodemus was there for. And Nicodemus was all like, well, how can a man be born again? Is he to enter into his mother's womb a second time? I mean, I'm an old man. And Jesus said, really, Nicodemus? Are you the teacher of Israel? And you're not, you're not uh, you know, doing the math with me here? That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You've got to be born of the water and of the spirit, right? And the flesh. So you've got to be born not only physically, but you've got to be born again spiritually. And he said, listen, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be, or even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He was saying, Nicodemus, mankind has been bitten by the fiery serpent of sin, and they're all dying. For the wages of sin is what? Is death. He says, but God has judged their sin. God is, is going to judge the sin of the world upon the cross. It's going to be placed on me. And I'm going to be lifted up on the cross, you see. Just like that serpent. And if people will look to me, Nicodemus, if they will believe in me and then not have to know the how-tos and why-fors, but just trust God said it. God said that the sin dilemma will be solved in me and if I will just look to his provision, I'll be saved. They'll not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, in the volume of the book, it is written of Christ. Those things were foreshadows. The fulfillment is in Jesus. He brings it up again in verse 10, complaining. Guys, time forbids us to touch on all the areas of Scripture in which Israel complained in their wilderness wanderings. But it brought destruction, disqualification. It's been said that murmuring and complaining is the language of hell. But praise and thanksgiving is the language of heaven. If it happened to Israel, it can happen to you and me. And that's Paul's point. Notice verse 11. Again, 
All these things happened to them as examples. Underline it. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. What's the takeaway? Learn the lesson. These things were written not so that we could sit around in our climate-controlled you know, buildings in our semi-comfy chairs and you know, asserting how stupid they were so we feel so much better about ourselves, but so that we don't do the same stupid stuff in a different day and age, okay? Their lessons were for our learning. Do you see that? How much worse then is it when we fall into the same traps having their examples to warn us otherwise? See, who's really erred exceedingly? Look at verse 12, guys. We'll finish here. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Jared, I don't know if you're back there, but that's your cue, brother. Here's the thing. Don't fall into the pitfall of pride thinking that because, you know, you've been baptized, you've been blessed of God, you've experienced supernatural provision and protection and privilege, therefore, really, you've got nothing to worry about. Knowledge puffs up, can result in overconfidence. And so resist the temptation to be self-focused, always indulgent. Guys, let's learn. We talked about it last week just a little bit. Learn to say no to that man in the mirror. Let's not look at these illustrations and think, man, I can't believe what they did. I can't believe how they acted. That's our propensity. That's our tendency. But we should receive the application and take inventory of our own lives. We should humble ourselves in the sight of God, learning to crucify the flesh and walk in the Spirit. Why? That others might see Him and be drawn to Him through our lives. Out of your heart may it flow torrents of living water. Amen? All right, let's bow our hearts. Father, we just want to thank you for the instruction of your word. And God, that we would take it to heart that you might change our hearts. We want to trust you more. We want to walk by faith. We want to be content with such things as you've provided. We want to honor you practically. We want to uh, edify others spiritually. God, we're asking that you would pour your spirit out upon us, that you would strengthen that resolve within us, God, that you would be glorified in us. Amen.